That's great. That's great. Well, you can take a seat now. We're going to come around the Word of God this morning. And uh, it's really hard for me because I have to show some favouritism because he's my husband. (laughs) I introduce this man. I live with him. I love him. And I know he's been preparing something incredible. He's got a five-week series to bring to this house. And I just want you to join me in welcoming him up this morning. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you very much. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Bam. Uh, it was great playing. <laughs> you sounded particularly good this <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, fantastic. Perfect. That's open. My post band drink of water before I officially start the clock. Awesome. Thank you. So, uh, good morning and uh, yeah, welcome. This morning is the first week of our new series, looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And we've titled this series, Reality Check, uh, which, yeah, I think, uh, I'm, I'm excited about what is to come. Uh, so, why, why have I called it Reality Check? Well, over these five weeks, we're going to be uh, I'm going to be sharing some key ideas on the book of 1 Corinthians. In this book, Paul is writing to the first century church in Corinth, addressing some problems that have been raised with him about how the church is behaving and how they're living in, uh, in the city and the environment of Corinth. Paul started the church when he spent 18 months there as a church planter on his mission trips. Oh, I just see how much kind of glory just kind of rolling out from behind me. Sorry, it's just a... I'm seeing the fog just kind of rolling out in front of me. It's it's cool. Um, he he spent 18 months there starting the the church, and then since moved on on his missionary journeys, starting churches in in many other uh, many other cities and towns, and and that's where we get a lot of the New Testament from. Uh, starting for in the Book of Acts, it, it chronicles all of that, and then uh, that's where a lot of these letters come from. As Paul writes to to the people involved or to the churches themselves. But problems have arisen in Corinth in these five areas. And if you were here last week, you hinted at it and you might be curious about what's to come. Uh, today we're going to talk about disunity. Uh, next week we're going to talk about sex, baby, you and me. <laughs> Just slip that one in there. We're going to talk about food in the third week, uh, the church service in the fourth and... The resurrection and living in victory uh, for the fifth week, which is a, a nice way to finish off. So we're going to be walking through the book of Corinthians and kind of sections today as covers four chapters and just kind of overview of the key themes through the book. So I encourage you to, uh, if you haven't, to read the book of 1 Corinthians and you can follow along. So we're covering four chapters today. I think next week is about three chapters or so. So just to um, pull out your Bible, pull out your app, your Bible app, and just to have a read through as we go through. And hopefully what I say uh, is correct, or you can hold me to account uh, afterwards, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be good. So in these five areas of disunity, sex, food, church service, and resurrection, the Corinthians have come up with some crazy ideas about these and created their own reality and how to live in their city culture and how to follow Jesus. 
They are living lives that are about putting themselves first and not considering the impact of their behaviour on those around them. They're living for the individual and not for the community overall. And that creates a whole bunch of problems. So Paul addresses these five problems, then directs them to look at the problems through the lens of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So the, the idea being, and this where reality check comes from, this in turn, they get a perspective change and shows them a proper reality in which to live in. So they're living in their own world and sometimes what we think is real or a reality and the bigger picture is just kind of our perspective on a thing. And he's trying to shift and draw their attention to the truth and what Jesus and like what Loretta was sharing in communion. And I was going to mention something about how you can have wisdom. You can have nice quotes. You can have a little red book that's got a collection of those. You can have a blue one on your phone with an F symbol as the app on Facebook or Pinterest or on Instagram where these quotes come through. Sometimes they are good. Sometimes they are noble. Sometimes God speaks to you through them. But the Corinthians had created this environment where uh, Corinth was a city that was a major trade centre. It was a major uh, thought centre. It was where gods were worshipped as a kind of key, key place for that. So they had elevated human wisdom and eloquence, human thought and achievement above truth. And, this, and we're not talking about the city, we're talking about in the church. So they had, the environment in the city had come into the church and Paul is saying, we need to correct our thinking to bring Jesus into it. Look at these situations through the life of Jesus and shift our reality. So they need to check their reality, make sure they were acting and behaving in a way to flex the change that Jesus had made in their world. So when they have their reality check and move to the reality of Jesus as in their example, they're in a position to respond with the gospel and bring about change in their relationships, in their family, in their community, and in their work. Who thinks it might be good to have some insight and encouragement in their fa relationships, family, community, and workplace today? Yeah. Awesome. Who knows? We, we need it. There's, there's a lot of discouragement out there. Uh, I, li I like encouragement. It puts courage into people. And that's hopefully what you're going to get out of today and out of this series. So we're going to spend the next five weeks looking at these five problems and then coming up with five reality check responses to those problems. Cool. So that's the series. Now on to the first problem, which is disunity. A definition of disunity is disagreement or conflict within a group. Have you ever been in a group that's been in disunity? There's been disagreement or conflict? It's not nice. It's a bit awkward. Things don't happen. And generally, often those groups end up splitting into multiple groups. People have their own agendas, their own ideas, and they just can't bring themselves together. So Paul covers this in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And today I want to show you how and why the Corinthians were in disagreement and conflict, why they were in disunity, and why they were not unified as they should have been. We will then see how the life of Jesus brings them and us together, but in a way that was and still is considered by many foolish. 
That apparent foolishness gives us today's title of foolish unity. Turn to your neighbour and say, foolish unity. Cool, so let's, let's explore this a little. So unity is kind of like a, a, a simple, easy word to say that describes a problem. But what, where it all stems from is the Corinthians had a popularity problem. It's a little bit like me in high school. That's a joke for everyone that doesn't know me. Okay, I came to Australia when I was 20. You didn't know me at high school. Confession, I wasn't the popular guy at high school. It's okay. But this popularity problem was causing them to be divided. See, as mentioned before, Corinth was that important centre of thought, of business, of trade, of worship to the Greek gods. It's a pivotal city. And in this city, they had many fine speakers and thought leaders who they elevated and they prided themselves on their wisdom, intellect and eloquence of speech. It's almost like you say, Corinth was like a 24-7 TED talk. Just all these thoughts coming through, all the latest thoughts and thinking and wisdom and the greatest and everyone's, it's just, so refined and well executed. And that was what was elevated. Intellect and the wisdom and the eloquence of speech. And then Corinth had Paul come along and start this church. He was there for 18 months and then later came Peter, the apostle, and Apollos through their city and spent time in, in their church. Paul started the church and then the others came through after Paul's time. Now, each person brought a different style of ministry, how they talked, their stories, the lives they lived, as you might expect. And they can naturally appeal to different members of the community. And here in C3 Norwood, we've got half a dozen or so uh, regular preachers on, on the calendar, guys and girls with different strengths and styles. And we know we can reach and communicate and different appeal to different personalities. And then from time to time, we have guest speakers that come through. Uh, might be friends of our church or other ministers who come through and we've invited in because they're great friends and they have a great heart for our church. So we want to hear what God has to say through them. There are also speakers that we know just have a certain style of ministry. It might be a prophet or a healer. We might bring them in to catch what they have and to bring that style of ministry to the church, just to give a diversity of styles and to bring in the different gifts and to see those come into the church. Now, this is all totally okay, and it's intentional, and we embrace these different speakers. We know we need it, and we embrace it. It is, creates, in some ways, a unity through the diversity, the different, the different stories, the different backgrounds, the different approaches, and then together as a team, we discuss plans and themes in the messages and ultimately trust God that he will thread all these messages together through his Holy Spirit. As we have, we've planned out this year with, we've got three-week series and four-week series and five-week series, just depending where events like Father's Day and Mother's Day and Easter sit in there. So can I say, I'm preaching on 1 Corinthians. Someone else, Kirsty's going to be preaching on Romans after the series and Carmen did Ephesians and Brendan did uh, Matthew and the Kingdom of Heaven earlier and 
uh, Pastor Chris in the last three weeks has been smaller books. We trust that the Holy Spirit threads us all together as we meet as a team, we pray into it, and then we let the Holy Spirit do the rest. But the problem with the Corinthians was these variations in style eventually led to a popularity contest between the followers of Paul, Apollos and Peter. Not necessarily the leaders themselves, but their followers, as they didn't have a Christ-centred approach. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians to find out a little bit more. In verse 11, 1 Corinthians 1, 11, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. See, this contest and who they identify that they follow is creating divisions in the church. But interestingly, and sadly, the divisions amongst the believers weren't so much about what was getting taught and the if it was theologically correct or is following the words of Jesus correctly. It was about personality and style and approach. So not the important stuff, not the critical stuff, just kind of the, the flavour to it. The, the personality and the preference was driving division in the church. So verse 13, Paul goes on to ask, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? The answer to those three is no. Christ is not divided. Paul was not crucified. That was Jesus, Christ. Were you baptised in the name of Paul? No, again, it was in the name of Jesus. Paul is posing a rhetorical question to challenge the Corinthians regarding the divisions within their congregation. Paul is saying, since Jesus is one with his body, the Corinthian church, which Paul later in 1 Corinthians describes as the body, should be united. It's not disconnected. A body that's disconnected, generally, you can, you know, the, the, the limbs that are disconnected generally will shrivel up and die. And the whole body's not operating as, as one. Paul is also, could be critiquing them when they say, is Christ divided? And Paul, and they're following and they're comparing and saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Peter. I follow Jesus. He's saying, are you really putting Peter and Jesus on the same level? Are you really putting me and Jesus on the same level? It'd be like me getting up here and whipping up an argument and say, right, I really want to know the truth. Who here follows Jesus and who here follows me? Because I'm as important as Jesus. So you need to choose now. If you follow me, you stay here. If you follow Jesus, you can leave. <laughs> Perfect. I got it the right way around. <laughs> can you imagine the cheek? Paul is giving them a rebuke and saying, no, Jesus is the head of the body. Everyone else is human. And you're putting and dividing yourselves for personalities and not being centred on Jesus as the pinnacle as our ultimate aim. The Corinthians have acted divisively, assessing their leaders based on their own definition of what it means to be wise and spiritual. It's dangerous territory. 
remember, as a city and as a culture, they rate wisdom and eloquence as some of the highest assets one can have, especially a teacher or a speaker. can think of a few people in our world at the moment who might be good speakers, might have a wisdom or an eloquence or a style of speaking that attracts followers, but are they speaking truth or are people just following because they have a certain charisma? And you look back and uh, in history, some of the, the the worst people were the, the greatest speakers and could whip up a crowd into a frenzy. And I'm thinking back to the 20s and 30s in Germany as an example. Has anyone ever seen like little clips, old recordings of the Nazi rallies? Amazing. There's an eloquence and a sort of a, a power in that style of speaking, but it's not truth. But it can take people away from their centre. Paul responds to them stating that their views don't fit with the gospel he preached to them. Think about that for a moment. Paul the Apostle telling them they are off course. That'd be like, for us, one of our overseers, the guy in, in Salisbury, Ian and Sharon or Pastor Phil and Chris coming over from Sydney and coming in and saying, you guys have got it all wrong. What you're doing, everything about it, you're out of step. That's a, that's a heavy, heavy comment to have. They need to check their reality to fix the problem. A problem of popularity that led to disunity and division. So that's the problem, disunity and popularity. Now it is time to look at the response. So the response to the problem is God unifies them through foolishness. He sort of flips the whole thing upside down. We'll see what that looks like. He draws their attention to what is considered a foolish message with the aim it brings unity to their church. The definition of foolish is lacking good sense or judgment or unwise. So let's see where this term comes in for the Corinthians. And it's mentioned quite a few times, uh, in particularly in the first chapter. In verse 18, Chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if you insert in a definition of foolishness, the message of the cross appears to lack good sense. Why, why, does, it, why does the message of the cross appear to lack good sense? Why does it seem foolish? Because God has provided salvation which is eternal life and redemption for everybody through the crucifixion, through, through the murder, through the death of a Messiah, the, the, the one person in, in the faith that has been spoken about for generations as the, the one person who can come and save everybody to redeem the whole situation. And he puts them to death at the age of 33. So God's plan to bring freedom and authority to his people was for their leader to be killed before he really had a, a proper chance to spread his influence or sit as a king on a throne for decades and, and rule an empire. 
Jesus just roamed around a geographically a fairly small area compared to what we might be used to travelling these days. The influence came later, but in his lifetime, in his active work of ministry and influence, three years or so. It doesn't match how we might do it. If we were in Westeros, it's a Game of Thrones reference for those that don't know it, and going to save all people or save our, our nation, it would probably involve battles. Kingdoms coming against kingdoms. And then the victorious king or queen, there would be battles over, over many years until one was kind of ruling all. And we might add in a dragon or two as well. How we might rule and, and save our people would be quite different. But what did God do? He sent Jesus to the cross to die at the age of 33. In verse 20, Paul says, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Paul is turning it upside down. He's saying what you know, what you elevate is wisdom and is right and great. You've, you've got it wrong. He challenges the understanding and value of wisdom. He says God's wisdom is so wise that it appears foolish to those who don't understand it. In other parts, he's saying the lowest of God's wisdom is so much higher than the highest of human wisdom. The Corinthians so value their wisdom and intellect that Paul is challenging them and saying, good news of Jesus is so wise it feels like foolishness because you can't comprehend it. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The message about a crucified Messiah would have offended Jewish people. According to Jewish tradition, a person hung on a tree was considered to be cursed. And they were not, the Jews were expecting that very Messiah, the one that would come and, and bring their country back together and see their nation elevated across all humanity. They would not expect their chosen one to be hung on a cross. They were looking for other signs. And literally, they were looking for a king to rise and to bring about an army and physical strength in how humans might conjure up victory. And then the Romans, the Gentiles mentioned here, as well as the Greeks, the Romans used a cross as a humiliating form of execution reserved for the worst criminals, insurrectionists. And then the Greeks believed that the gods operated above the limitations of humans and would not have allowed themselves to be treated as Jesus was. Don't know where their accent comes from, but it's definitely not Greek. It's, it's probably a mixture of a few different movies I watched recently. But the gods would not do such a thing. They were above humans. And here we have Jesus dying on a cross to redeem humanity. In the Greeks' view, there is no wisdom in what happened whatsoever. So they can't really see it. In verse 24, 
But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus' death on the cross and following resurrection reveals God's power to save people from sin and death. And thus his power to redeem seemingly irredeemable situations, like the problems at Corinth, like in our life, He had that power. The description of Christ as the power of God also challenges the Roman Empire's use of crucifixion as a symbol of power. Their ultimate threat to anybody who rose up against the Roman Empire is they'd put them up in an elevated position and crucify them on a cross. God says, okay, you think you're going to win this one. You think you're going to win this one, devil, but I have a plan. You have been trying throughout humanity to bring God's people down, but this Jesus is the Son of God. You think when he dies on the cross, you win. God had other plans. When he raised Jesus on the third day. So here is where we get to. The Corinthians had disunity caused by popularity and recognition of human talents and achievements overall. But living from the reality of knowing a risen Jesus means we can have a reliance on God and not man's abilities. Paul is saying the foolishness of the gospel should be unifying us and that the power that raised Jesus from the dead should be bringing us together. That is foolish unity. George, can I have you up, please? Now, as I was praying and preparing, it's like, God, what can we take from this? And I feel like maybe there's people in the room here this morning that feel like they're in a situation that is not redeemable. Circumstances up against you and advice and wisdom is saying one thing. And you feel like you're boxed or locked into something. But the very same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. In chapter 2, Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says, these things you value are wisdom and eloquence, but I'm going to give you something else. Not the thing you're looking for, but something that you cannot argue against, not something you can be talked out of, but to experience the power, the presence of God, to see that outworked in your life. That is something that those quick quotes on Instagram and Facebook cannot provide, is the power of God. My ultimate goal when I preach is hopefully a little bit like Paul's. I've liked this passage for many years. When I'm on stage preaching or service leading or sharing something, I put effort and preparation into my words. Sometimes I stuff it up a bit, get a bit wrong. The stories don't quite make sense or I just don't quite connect all the thoughts together. Hopefully this morning is not one of those times. But that's just being human. 
But aside from my words, my preparation and what I can bring to the table, my ultimate aim every time I preach is that God's power, His presence, His Holy Spirit is speaking to people and reaching people where they are at. In Isaiah 61, Jesus quoted this same passage. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, bind up the brokenhearted and set the captives free. Honestly, I don't really care about the words that much. I hope they make sense and I hope they give you something to go and take and think about during the week. But my ultimate aim is that you leave with the presence of God, that whatever you've come in with from the week, that it's lifted off your shoulders and you, you leave here with peace. That as we worship, and, and it's not just about my words, it's just the whole service. You come in and you worship and there's, weights can be lifted off and chains can be broken. This is what Paul is saying. It's not about wisdom and eloquence. It's about experiencing God, His power. And when you rely on God, see what happens to these irredeemable situations. Just ask everybody to stand. Holy Spirit, let's just reach out to Him. Holy Spirit, Your peace, Your presence with us right now. Thank you, your peace is dropping into people's hearts and minds right now. You're stilling busy minds. You're taking worry upon yourself, upon the cross, sickness. just wonder where we are if there are people that might feel like they have an irredeemable situation might be in work it might be in your health might be in relationships family can often be very difficult so complicated in so many different ways things can play out might be in finances might be in a spiritual situation that you just feel locked and you don't know. Just wonder by a show of hands if there's people that are feeling like they're in a situation that in their strength cannot be redeemed at the moment or they feel locked in. Just raise your hand just at where you are. There's hands across the room. Just lift them high. Holy Spirit. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You stand upon that word.
it means that his teaching, a yoke is a Jewish leader's teaching and thoughts and, and the style, the lifestyle that they make people follow. Jesus says, what I ask you to do is easy and light. I'll, I'll carry it. You're free from man's expectations, from human expectations and old thoughts. Be free from that. Your yoke is easy. Burden is light. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you this week. You teach us how to rely on you and to align ourselves with your truth. To look beyond wisdom and the outward appearance and to look at every situation through your eyes. Just before we finish up, the ultimate power of raising Jesus from the dead made available to us is a free gift of eternal life, a gift to save a life that is otherwise irredeemable. Maybe you feel like your whole life is irredeemable at the moment. I'm not sure what brought you to church. Maybe you come here often, you're here every week, or maybe you might have seen our website or our Facebook page, or you're just walking past and you thought you'd come along. Might have been a friend who brought you. Maybe you thought you're at the end of yourself and I'm just going to go along to a church because I have nothing to lose. Life might be a struggle or it actually might be okay for you, but either way you're feeling like something is missing and you're never satisfied. The Bible tells us if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. In a moment, we're going to pray a prayer confessing our need for Jesus. It's a private prayer, but we're all going to pray it together to provide the opportunity to do it as a community. I'm believing that there might be people here this morning that have never prayed such a prayer, or there might be people that have done it before, but it's time to do business with God this morning. It's time to come back. We're going to pray this prayer and then celebrate together. And then if you are praying that prayer by yourself for the first time or as a significant time of coming back, if you've done that before, I'd love to talk to you after the service or Carmen as well. We just want to help you and connect you with people that can help you into the next steps and understanding of the purpose of God in your life. So I don't know where you might be at this morning, but God does. He is watching and He is waiting for you. Let's pray this together after me. Jesus, I need you. I am humbly calling out to you. I'm tired of doing things my way. Help me to start doing things your way. I invite you into my life be my Lord and Saviour. Fill the emptiness in me with your Holy Spirit and make me whole. Lord, help me to trust you. Help me to understand 
your grace, mercy and peace. Amen. If you have prayed that for the first time, or you come back and you've been away from God, it's a significant time for you. Please do come and talk to myself or Carmen after the service. Yeah, we'd love to say connect to you and with someone that can help walk with you and to uh, help you do life well following Jesus. Awesome. So next week, talk about sex, baby. Talk about you and me. Talk about I. I'm going to quit now before they kick me off. (laughs) Yes, before you get in trouble, before you get yourself in trouble. Why don't we thank Nathan again for a great morning.